your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, and uh, we uh, basically separate sense from nonsense, facts from myths. My background is chemistry, and uh, as I like to tell you, chemistry is the central science that ties all the others together. Because if you have a good feel for what molecules are all about, then you have a pretty good idea of what can and cannot happen in the world. As usual, I'm going to start out by giving you two questions. And if you know the answer, 514-790-0800, or you can text questions, comments also to 514-800. All right, we'll start out with two questions. First one, what were Mort safes? Mort safes, M-O-R-T-S-A-F-E. What was a Mort safe? They were invented uh, around 1816. What were they? The other question, the name of what element was wrongly named for the Greek word for acid because of the mistaken belief that all acids contained it? All right, so there's the two questions that you can puzzle over and give us a call at 514-790-0800. And obviously you can call with other scientific uh, questions as well. Now I want to tell you uh, what uh, I think is uh, an interesting story. And um, if you are uh, listening to me now and uh, you have available a laptop or uh, an iPad or in fact, even your cell phone, you can look up a picture because it will make what I'm going to tell you uh, much more meaningful. The picture you want to look up is called an experiment on a bird in the air pump. All right, let's get going. Will the bird live or die? That's the question we are left pondering about when contemplating Joseph Wright of Derby's marvelous 1768 painting, which I said is entitled An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump. That uh, painting is on display in the National Gallery of London. And it's quite a big, uh, big piece. I'd say, oh, it's maybe like four by five feet, something like that. Extremely, extremely impressive. The scene depicts a natural philosopher, a scientist, of course, were called in those days, and is cranking a vacuum pump uh, to evacuate a glass bulb. And in that glass bulb is a bird. Looks like it's a cockatiel. And uh, the bird is obviously struggling to breathe. And there's a bunch of onlookers uh, looking at this uh, experiment. And it's quite obvious that there's a range of emotions there from curiosity to horror. And the demonstrator, the natural philosopher, has his hand hovering above a valve at the top of the glass globe. And we're not sure if he's about to open the valve and allow the bird to survive so that air will rush in, or that having made the point that air is necessary for life, is he just making sure that the valve is closed so that the experiment can come to a rather dramatic end? The subject of this painting uh, is very interesting to, to look back in terms of history. 
because it goes back to Evangelista Torricelli's classic experiment back in 1643. And many of you, of course, will remember that from high school. What Torricelli did was he, he took a long glass tube, meter long glass tube, and he sealed it at one end. And then he filled it with mercury. Uh, holding his finger over the open end, he then inverted it into uh, a, a basin of mercury. And the column of mercury in the tube then fell. And it fell until its height was 76 centimeters. Well, the space above the mercury now contained nothing, right? And this was the first recorded case of a permanent vacuum. And Torricelli's explanation was that we live in what he said was a sea of air that exerts a downward pressure the same way that water exerts pressure on a submerged object. And the reason that the mercury did not fall all the way down in the tube was because air was exerting pressure on the pool of mercury in which the tube had been immersed, pushing the mercury back up into the tube. Well, Torricelli was a pupil of Galileo. And with this experiment, he invented the barometer, device that measures air pressure. Uh, Torricelli's experiment inspired Otto von Guericke, mayor of the German town of Magdeburg, to create a device capable of producing a vacuum whenever desired. Let's face it, I mean, to use the mercury experiment to create a small bit of vacuum at the end of the tube was not a very practical way of creating a, a vacuum. So anyway, Mongerike managed to design the world's first vacuum pump, and it was a piston in a cylinder equipped with a one-way flap uh, valve. And with a hand crank, the piston could be moved down to suck air out of the container to which the pump was attached. And if you want an analogy, this is like using a syringe. Syringe, of course, has a plunger. And when you draw back the plunger, uh, there's a vacuum created. And that's what sucks any liquid back into the, into the syringe. So anyway, to demonstrate his pump, von Guericke uh, made a pair of Magdeburg hemispheres so-called, of course, because he was the mayor of that town. He fitted these together to form a sphere about half a meter in diameter. A valve on one of the hemispheres was connected to the pump, and air could then be removed from inside this, uh, this globe. And then came a fantastic demonstration, which has been repeated uh, many times since then, because it is so impressive. But the first time was back in 1654 in front of a large crowd, including Emperor Ferdinand III. He hitched two teams of horses, consisting of 15 horses each, attached to the two sides of the sphere. And the horses were unable to pull the hemispheres apart until the valve was opened, allowing air to rush in. Robert Boyle, one of the founders of modern chemistry, uh, he has become famous, of course, because his view was that matter was composed of elements that could not be resolved into simple substances. He was also a great experimentalist. And he heard about von Guericke's vacuum pump, and he constructed one of his own. And with that pump, he studied gases. He ended up formulating Boyle's law, stating that the volume of a gas is inversely proportional to its pressure, which, of course, all students learn about in high school. Anyway, Boyle tested the effects of what he called rarefied air, his version of vacuum, on various phenomena, including sound, combustion, and magnetism. And then in 1660, in his famous book, 
He described how he had put mice, snails, flies, and birds in a glass globe that he then evacuated. And he showed that air was necessary for life. And he describes in the book, placing a lark in the chamber and watching, quote, as the bird threw herself over two or three times and died with her breast upward, her head downwards, and her neck awry. Now, this is exactly the experiment that is depicted in the painting that I'm telling you about, the painting by Wright. And uh, it shows an itinerant lecturer, more entertainer than scientist, really. And they went around performing uh, experiments in front of paint crowds or sometimes in, in people's houses. And uh, the experiment here shows uh, a bird in, in a globe attached to a vacuum pump and the bird is obviously struggling. And, but what is interesting are the onlookers. Two little girls are being urged, likely by their father, to pay attention to the experiment, but they appear to be reviled. Then there's an inquisitive boy who looks on with curious anticipation of the outcome. Then there's a man with an obvious inclination towards science because he seems to be timing the experiment. Another is lost in thought, possibly contemplating the ethics involved. And there's also a young couple who seem to have eyes only for each other, totally disinterested in the plight of the bird. Now, the reason that I, I think that this uh, painting is really so amazing is because if we substitute climate change or endocrine disruptors or the COVID situation for the bird in the, in the flask, the painting can be seen to represent current views on scientific controversies. Some of the onlookers are focused on evidence, some prefer to ignore it, some are unsure of what is going on, and some live in ignorant bliss. Now, if you take a careful look at the uh, painting, uh, you will see that there's a boy at the side who holds a rope that seems to be swung over a beam to enable the empty birdcage to be raised or lowered. The question is, is he getting ready to lower it to house a bird that's gonna be revived when air is allowed in, or is the cage being put away because a dead bird will not leave it? Anyway, when you look at this picture, you'll see that the philosopher appears to be looking straight out at the observer from the picture, imploring us to think about all the aspects of the situation. It's a great painting. And if you look carefully, you'll note there's a very clever nod to von Guericke, with a pair of Magdeburg hemispheres sitting in the shadows in the foreground in the picture. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. What were they? So what were the mort safes invented around 1816? The name of what element was wrongly named from the Greek word for acid because of the mistaken belief that all acids contained it? I don't have a correct answer yet, so give us a call, 514-790-0800 or 514-800 for texting. Uh, someone wants to know my opinion on the efficacy of low-level laser and uh, LED light therapy for hair loss and thinning hair, uh, my opinion is that there is no evidence that this works. 
So it's uh, uh, these helmets that have uh, uh, low-power la lasers embedded in them. I know of no evidence that that uh, works. Neither is it scientifically very uh, plausible. <clears throat> Another comment uh, from someone who, who finds the painting I talked about very interesting, and but finds my comparison to, to COVID uh, weak. Uh, I don't think it's weak at all. I, I will stand by it. Uh, I'm referring to current controversies, and uh, uh, what I said is that the uh, the painting can be looked at uh, to represent some current views on scientific uh, controversies, and that some of the onlookers are focused on evidence, some prefer to ignore evidence, some are unsure of what is going on, and some live in ignorant bliss. And I think that that uh, does fit. Anyway, I think it's a marvelous uh, uh, painting. Uh, let's just go to Mark on the line. Mark? Hi. Um, Hi. I was just wondering, um, someone told me something a while back ago that uh, kerosene uh, gets rid of uh, smell. I mean, a kerosene lamp. Is that a fact or is it fiction? That's total fiction. It, it will, in fact, smell. <laughs> you don't want burning kerosene. It, it's not a pleasant thing. And neither is it safe to to have kerosene lamps in the home. So okay, no, it will not, it will um, okay. Not well, get thanks much very smells. much. <laughs> okay, okay, and I think we also have Irvin on the line. Oh, hi, Joe. I have a hi. question about COVID testing. Um, I went for a test on Monday, and um, I was asked, "Oh, do you want to uh, provide a?" Um, gargled uh, salt water um, solution for for the test as opposed to the swab, and I picked the gargle, and I was wondering your opinion on the accuracy versus the um, swab. Yes, I, I from yeah from everything that I've seen, uh, there's no difference that you you can uh, you can isolate the requisite RNA from the uh, gargle as well as from a swab. And I know that, I mean, they've uh, come out with this because a lot of people who <laughs> obviously don't like uh, the swab being shoved up their nose. But from oh. from everything that I've seen, uh, they are really uh, as, as good. Okay? Okay. Well, yeah, the only um, uh, issue, uh, and I was lucky, is that you weren't allowed to take... Uh, anything in your mouth, including water, the hour before. But other than that, uh, you know, they said it was the same thing. So I'm glad that uh, you agree with that. Okay. All right. And I, ho I hope it came out negative. Oh, it did. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. I, I came across a, a comment uh, this uh, past week by Dr. Martin Blachier. Uh, he's uh, in France. And he is very popular on TV there. He seems to be their equivalent of Dr. Fauci, although I don't think he quite has the background of Dr. Fauci. He does have a medical degree, although it seems he never did practice medicine. But he's also got a degree in statistics and epidemiology. So uh, uh, he seems to know what he was talking about. Now, I'm not sure whether he was misquoted or he was wrong in a statement that he gave on, on, on French TV when he said that uh, uh, people who are vaccinated are more likely to uh, 
be infected with the Omicron uh, variant than with any uh, than the unvaccinated people. Now, when you hear that, that sounds very scary. You know, the implication that vaccination is actually negative, that you're more likely to get infected if you're uh, vaccinated. But this was, um, uh, he either said it wrong or it, it was uh, misinterpreted. Because what uh, the study that he was referring to, which came out of uh, Denmark, actually showed that among subjects who had been triply uh, vaccinated, which is, of course, you know, that's the highest level of vaccination, 8% uh, of infections among those people were by Omicron, whereas only 1.2% among unvaccinated people were due to the Omicron. Well, that actually makes sense. Since the vaccine works much better against the Delta variant than against Omicron, you would expect that whatever infections arise among the triple vaccinated are more likely to be Omicron because they're much better protected against Delta than against Omicron. The important question, of course, is not the relative Omicron-Delta distribution among the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, but the rate of infection among the triple vaccinated versus among the unvaccinated, no matter if it's the Omicron or Delta variant. And the Danish, Danish study showed that infections are about four times more prevalent among the unvaccinated. So uh, it may have been just a misinterpretation, uh, but it certainly is not true that uh, uh, if you are vaccinated, you are more likely to be infected by Omicron than if you're unvaccinated. What is true is that if you are triply vaccinated and if you are infected, you're more likely to be infected by Omicron because you're protected against Delta, but you're still less likely to be infected. So I hope that that uh, uh, clarifies it. And he himself, uh, I think on French TV, uh, came out and, uh, and clarified uh, this. So uh, I, I uh, haven't seen too much more of... Uh, uh, of Dr. Martin Blanchier, but I know that uh, originally he was also very, very uh, critical of Dr. Didier Raoult, who had become a French icon with his discovery, quote discovery, that hydroxychloroquine is a cure for COVID, which of course it is, it is not. And Blanchier, to his credit, pointed out the weakness of Raoult's evidence. And then he aroused anger in France because he had criticized Raoult, who the French media had elevated to sort of a, a demigod uh, status. Um, now, it is also true that uh, from what I see, Blachier has waffled on mask mandates. He originally supported them, then he opposed them. But he is a supporter of vaccination, although curiously said he will not vaccinate his children. And he's not uh, devoid of conflict of interest. Uh, because he actually founded a company that uh, uh, accumulates data, which they then sell to clients, many of which are pharmaceutical companies. And one of his clients is Gilead, the producer of remdesivir, which is used to treat COVID, and Blanchier has promoted that drug. Anyway, he's an interesting character in, in, in France, and he's on TV all the time, and people uh, do listen to him. Okay, we got to take a break, check to see what's out there in the news, what CTV has lined up for us, 
and uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. On the universe with wonder in your eyes Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier okay, I have a very interesting question um, texted in about how is it that uh, deaths in 2021 uh, from uh, COVID were more than in 2020 when there was no vaccine for the better part of that year? Very good question. Uh, but I think there's a statistical answer to this. Well, first of all, of course, the virus continues to spread. So there are more people infected around the world. The real question you want to ask is what percentage of the people who have died have been vaccinated versus the unvaccinated? And that's where the information is really telling. Have been unvaccinated. So the vaccine protects against death. In terms of protecting against infection, it's not as, as good. But of course, there are just so many people in the world. So as the virus spreads, there's going to be more and more uh, cases of, of infection. But what we have to, to look at is the uh, number of people in hospitals and number of people dying. And that's more, much more prevalent among the unvaccinated. In fact, uh, just uh, today's statistics from Quebec show that uh, among the people who test positive, uh, you are twice as much likely to be unvaccinated than vaccinated if you tested positive. If you want to make that sound even better, and you know how you can play around with statistics, you can say that you can uh, improve, your improve your chance of not contracting the disease 100% by being vaccinated, okay? Uh, so uh, that I think those are the important uh, uh, numbers. Okay, I think Mary has a question about potatoes, Mary? Oh, oh yes, uh, Dr. Joe, uh, I love your show and your newsletter. Um, so uh, my question is, in regards to potatoes, somewhere uh, back you mentioned that if they have a green uh, uh, kind of hue, uh, once you yeah. peel them, to uh, not eat that because it's toxic. And uh, I, I either I'm always buying the wrong kind of potatoes, but they, they're, they're always green when I peel them, and now it's like uh, three, four times in a row that I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm too scared they're, to eat them. Yeah. Yes, there is, uh, there is green coloring that you can see in potatoes. The green color itself is not dangerous. That green color is just chlorophyll, which is the green pigment in plant materials. Chlorophyll, of course, is, is probably the most important chemical in the world because it allows for photosynthesis, right? Plants need to take in uh, carbon dioxide and water so that they can make all their nutrients and crank out oxygen. So chlorophyll is extremely important. So your potato is trying to sprout. That's what it is doing when it is producing the green color. Ah. The green color is no problem. But what happens is that when the potato is starting to sprout, it also produces a chemical called solanine to ward off insects because it is when the, the roots are actively growing that they are most attractive to insects. And solanine wards off insects. Now, as far as the potato is concerned, we are just large insects. So, you know, it wants to ward us off as well. But we have a much larger body size than insects, 
So therefore, we would need far more solanine to be poisoned. So I would say do not go into a habit of looking for green potatoes to eat. But if you see the green, you can just peel it away and eat the rest of the potato. It's oh, not a okay, problem. Oh, okay, because I've been throwing them out. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. Yeah, no, just peel away the green. Okay. Okay? All right. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. All right. I, I think Faye also has a question. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, my question is, is there um, a contraindication between getting a shingles vaccine and a COVID booster like shortly after? Not that I've heard of. Not that uh -huh. I've heard of. And uh, so I, I, I think you can get those. Uh, I, I don't think you get them the same day, but uh, right. I don't, you know, I don't think you need to wait months. But anyway, I mean, when you go for your shingle shot, your doctor will tell you uh, or they'll, you know, they'll ask you first if there's any kind of issue. But I don't think that there is. Mm -hmm. All okay. right. All right. Okay. I'm still surprised that I'm not getting an answer to my uh, uh, question. I didn't think that this is is uh, is that difficult. I wanted to know what mort safes are or were. They were invented in 1816, and also I asked for the name of the element that was wrongly named from the Greek word for acid because of the mistaken belief that all acids contained it. <clears throat> The uh, uh, last caller uh, was uh, referring to our weekly newsletter, which, uh, of course, you can all sign up for. It's free. All you have to do is go to www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. And uh, we do provide, uh, I think, relevant uh, and entertaining information uh, on a weekly basis. And uh, also uh, my videos, which I, I produce several a week, short three-minute videos, are also included in, the, uh, in that package. And uh, this, uh, this past week, uh, I did on Friday, I, I, I call them uh, Magic Fridays, and I try to do a magic trick uh, video every Friday. Uh, because I find that, you know, it tantalizes people and uh, it teaches you powers of observation and uh, coming to conclusion. So uh, uh, this week uh, I did a trick and, and I had many, many people call me and, and, and email me wanting to know how I had done it. It's where I, I took a deck of cards and I uh, magically divided them into into three and then restored it into one normal uh, deck as sort of the it's like the zigzag illusion which i'm sure many of you have seen where you uh, take a lady usually put her in this uh, upright box and uh, apparently take out her middle and then restore her so anyway you know people have had questions about you know just how how this was done well of course one of the rules of magic is that you don't tell people how it's done because it uh, it then takes it out of the realm of magic and makes it just a silly trick uh so no i'm not going to tell you how i did it but one thing i i i will do is if you have a theory about how i did that and if you are correct, I'll tell you whether it is correct uh, or not. Because after all, the whole point is to see whether or not people can come to a proper conclusion based on uh, uh, the observation that uh, that they make. And uh, of course, I also find that uh, doing magic is uh, you know, quite uh, entertaining. And it also takes my mind off every Friday of all the, the stuff that uh, I have to deal with all week in terms of... Uh, 
you know, uh, COVID and the statistics and, and the, the uh, selectivity of the test and the specificity of the test and what we should be doing. And, you know, un un unfortunately, we just don't have enough concrete answers to uh, to know exactly aside from the fact that that the vaccine is protective i mean one can debate to what extent but it is protective we also know that wearing of masks is protective we know that the way that you you catch this is is person-to-person -person contact and the frightening thing about this omicron variant uh, is that it seems to be very very um, infectious meaning that you need fewer viral particles in order to be um, infected. And uh, exactly, you know, why it's so infectious uh, isn't yet clear, but there's a study that did come out this week from um, uh, University of Hong Kong, where uh, they took some samples of tissues from the bronchial tube and from the lungs of, of people and uh, studied these in a Petri dish expose them to the virus to see how quickly uh, the virus would multiply. And what they found was in that the bronchial tissue, it multiplied very, very quickly, more quickly than, than the Delta version or the uh, original SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, but it didn't multiply as quickly in the lung tissue. Now, this is interesting because it seems that th this variant uh, the spike protein has been changed in such a way that it enters a cell more easily and therefore it can multiply more easily. But that seems to be the case for the, uh, the tissue taken from the bronchial tubes. Whereas in the lungs, it didn't multiply all that uh, quickly. So this is uh, the suggestion that they have is that this is the reason it's more infectious because it multiplies so quickly in the bronchi. And when you when you breathe or you know uh, expel sputum, it's going to be loaded with viral particles. But once it has infected the lungs, it doesn't multiply so quickly, and that's why they suggest that maybe the symptoms are less severe. But uh, this is a preliminary study, and remember, it's in a petri dish not in a living body, and you're not quite sure how re relevant that is. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Hey, I have a really useful text message. Uh, someone points out that www is no longer required for websites, which of course is true. And I know that I'm just so so used to reeling off www that I just do it automatically. I guess I better stop doing that. So if you want to check our website, mcgill.ca/oss. Okay, you don't need to to. Uh, do the uh, www, but I think most people know that. Uh, Maria wants to know if the Omicron virus is airborne because she's afraid to go out. Yes, it can be airborne, but you don't have to be afraid to go out. Uh, chances of, uh, of uh, getting infected outdoors is very small, unless, of course, you're standing face to face with someone and, and uh, spewing your breath at each other. But just normal uh, activities outdoors, you're not going to get it. But yes, of course, like like uh, the influenza virus, like the Delta virus, like the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, yes, it can be um, uh, airborne. 
Uh, all right. Uh, now, I think we do have uh, answers to my questions. Let's go to George. George. Hey, Dr. Joe. Great show. Hi. Uh, your question for the uh, mort safe. It's, uh, okay. I had to Google it. Uh, it's uh, an iron coffin. Uh, not exactly. No. No. It does not have to be a coffin. No. Okay. A mort safe was a device that was placed on top of the grave to prevent grave robbers. It was like a cage over uh, on the ground above the coffin to, to prevent uh, uh, grave robbers or so-called resurrectionists from digging up the corpse. Uh, because uh, in those days, in the early 1800s, uh, resurrectionists supplied schools of an, an anatomy. And uh, there was a big uh, demand for corpses. And the uh, schools of anatomy would pay a lot of money for fresh corpses. And uh, mort safes were these devices, usually made of very heavy iron, sometimes together with cement, that would sit on top of the grave to prevent any kind of, uh, of digging. Oh, and, wow. Uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes people were even uh, buried in lead caskets to prevent... Uh, uh, the casket from uh, being opened. Lead, of course, is, is is so heavy. So it was, yeah, it was a big deal in those days, uh, grave robbers. And, uh, of course, the whole story of Frankenstein is based on uh, getting parts from, uh, from different uh, uh, bodies. Okay, so at least we got that right. Now you know what mort safes uh, were. And there's still some historic relics in, in museums. And apparently in Scotland, in some churchyards, there are still some old rusted uh, mort safes. Okay, I, and maybe Reed has the answer to my other question. Reed? I hope so, Dr. Joe. I mean, I know of uh, dioxyribonucleic acid, uh, just because my brother's a a chemical technician and uh, grew up uh, in his uh, lovely presence. And so oxy would be, to me, uh, the, the, that's the Greek word for acid, uh, would be oxygen would be, be the element in question. Exactly, exactly. So oxygen, which was named, you know who named it? The man who is widely regarded to be the father of chemistry was Antoine Lavoisier. Uh, he's the one who named it oxygen because he thought that all acids contained oxygen. The acid that he was most familiar with was nitric acid, HNO3, which he made. And he thought that all other acids would contain acid, uh, would contain oxygen. He was wrong about that. But he was <laughs> right. He was right about uh, almost uh, everything else. He got uh, he, it wrong he, on that one. Yeah. But uh, he, his uh, textbook on chemistry was just uh, marvelous, and he described the, the elements, and he described chemical reactions, and he also investigated respiration. And uh, Lavoisier ah. really was the one who discovered that um, when we uh, breathe, the reason mm -hmm. we need oxygen is because it combines with uh, fuel in our body, uh, to burn it. The fuel in our body, of course, are the fats, the proteins, carbohydrates that we acquired from the diet. And we exhale carbon dioxide and water. And he was the one who really uh, uh, was the first one to study that and explain just what respiration was all about and, and why we needed uh, to breathe uh, oxygen. Okay, well, very notable, thank you very much. A very notable individual. Oh, he, he was. Unfortunately, he had a sad ending. Uh, because he lost his head during the French Revolution. He was guillotined. Uh, 
even though, of course, he was extremely well known already in his time as a scientist, but he also happened to be um, a stockholder in a tax collecting business. And that did not go down well during the French Revolution. Uh, there's a just a marvelous painting of Antoine Lavoisier and his uh, wife, Marie Pelouse Lavoisier, that hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And it's, I, I just I love that painting uh, because uh, uh, the way that the apparatus is painted, his apparatus, his uh, large uh, glass vessel, which he used to capture gases, is so beautifully painted and it even uh, reflects the, the light. And uh, he's got a, a barometer on the table beside him and his wife, who was uh, not only his wife, but also his lab assistant and his chronicler, uh, she uh, was an excellent artist and she drew pictures of all the equipment that that he used in in his uh, textbook. And uh, unfortunately, the French Revolution didn't care much about uh, science, and uh, perhaps the most valuable head fell in the French Revolution due to the, the guillotine. So that's the uh, story of uh, of Lavoisier. Uh, he did name oxygen, but he was not the first person to produce oxygen. That distinction goes either to the, the Swedish chemist, Wilhelm Scheele, or to uh, the uh, Englishman, Joseph Priestley, uh, both of whom produced oxygen the same way by uh, heating uh, mercuric oxide, uh, which is uh, HGO. It's a formula, and if you heat mercuric oxide, you will release some oxygen. Now, both Scheele and Priestley did that experiment, but didn't really realize what they had done. Uh, Priestley was really quite wrong about it. He, he thought that uh, when he heated uh, the mercuric oxide, uh, what he did was he released uh, what he called was phlogiston. And phlogiston was a substance that was supposedly present in substances that was released when the substance was, uh, was burned. And uh, that, uh, of course, was a, a mistake, which Lavoisier pointed out, uh, because he showed that you could take some substances and heat them like iron, and they would pick up weight, not lose weight, because, of course, they would react with oxygen air to form iron oxide. So iron oxide would be heavier than iron. So Lavoisier explained all the previous observations, although he was not the first one to make oxygen. All right. Well, we have once again run smack out of time, uh, but uh, rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week, and we will say goodbye to 2021. You'll be listening to the Dr. Joe Show, and I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>